We're going back today, of course, to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 8 today. Um, as we, were, we, we left off a couple weeks ago uh, looking at what Jesus was saying there, we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 30 in just a couple seconds here. But as we look in the book of John, uh, in the Gospel of John, we see this theme that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. John says in John chapter 20, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have freedom from our sin. It is only through Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ that we can live to the glory of God. He is the only way. And today in John chapter 8, Verses 30 through 36, we see this theme of, of free indeed. As Jesus continues, uh, he, is, he has been speaking here after the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, he's experienced, as is common, opposition to things he has said. And now he continues uh, and, and goes on this, this, um, this teaching of himself, of freedom that is found in himself and the condition of mankind that warrants that freedom. Beginning in chapter, th- or chapter 8, verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Father, we ask that today, as we open your word over these next few minutes, that you would set aside the distractions of our hearts and lives And you would help us to lock in to hear your truth. Lord, we didn't come here today to hear the ramblings of a person standing behind a a desk. We came here today to hear your word. We came here today to, to have the Holy Spirit take the truths of the gospel and apply them to our hearts once again. We ask today that you would do so. We ask that you would take the powerful word that you have inspired, and you have preserved for us today, and you would sink it deep into our hearts, that you would challenge our sin, that you would show us the Savior, that you would draw Christians closer to yourself, that you would expose those things in our hearts and lives that we have been unwilling to give to you. And would you give us hearts that are ready to change today? For unbelievers today who hear these things, Would you challenge them once again with the truth of who you are? The truth that without you, there is no hope. And that there is only enslavement. And the truth that you offer freedom today. We'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise for all that's said and done here. your name we pray. Amen. One of the strange realities of a sinful postmodern world, and that's the world in which you and I live today, is the disappearance of truth and all those who long for it. Where once the search for truth 
was in the hearts and minds of many people, now it is not so. Fewer people today want truth than ever before, it seems. Instead, you are encouraged not to look for truth, but to live your own truth. And the consequences of such thinking abound in our world. Gender confusion, legalized murder of unborn children, allowance for the abuse of substances, illegal, harmful actions taken against those who disagree with your stance and more are all byproducts of a system that encourages you to, quote, live your own truth. Naturally, if you're the one to say what's right and wrong in your life and thus live your own truth, who's to tell you you're wrong? And sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder, why does anyone ever want to live this way? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Why would anyone want to live in a world where there is no truth and we all just kind of live our own truth? Well, perhaps the answer is simpler than you and I might think. We have to go back to the core of who we are as human beings. All human beings are sinners. And what sinners want to do more than anything else is they want to sin without consequences and without guilt. So therefore, if there is no absolute truth, you know what there's also not? There are no consequences. And I don't have to feel bad for what I do. And what we imagine as human beings, what we we imagine that by denying truth and the existence of absolute truth, we imagine then that we are free to do whatever we please. Because if no one source of truth exists, then I don't have to worry, right? I mean, sin runs rampant, but it isn't really sin because sin requires that there is truth to compare it to. And quite frankly, there are many churches who have taken a postmodern or a modified, what we call a modified postmodern approach to their ministries. Preaching against sin makes people uncomfortable. So therefore, we don't preach against sin, is the stance of some churches. And so hundreds and thousands of people flock to such congregations where they fulfill a religious duty that, that satisfies some itch so they can return to their own way of living. The reality is, there is absolute truth. The further reality is, there is only one source of such truth. And the greatest reality is that the undeniable, unchanging, and unapologetic truth found in God's word and in God himself is the path to true and lasting freedom. See, here's the thing. The absence of truth does not free you from sin. Instead, Jesus came to declare the truth of God found in himself and offer new life to all that that found it in that truth. Because the absence of truth doesn't free you, it shackles you to your sin and damnation. And what you see in the passage before us today as Jesus continues to unfold the truth of himself is that hearing, confessing, and acting on the truth of God revealed in Jesus is the only path to true freedom and the only way to live for the glory of God. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to freedom. And it is only through embracing who he is 
can you find eternal life. And it is only through living in him in a consistent, dependent basis as a Christian that you and I can live for the glory of God. And so let's look at what Jesus says today as he continues to teach here in this area of the temple during, after, right around this time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Probably the feast has closed by this point. And Jesus continues to reveal himself to those who listen. And it begins in verses 30 through 32 with this idea of what true freedom is. And in verse 30, you meet a group here of what we may call professing believers. Look in verse 30. As he spoke these words, the Bible tells us that many believed in him. So Jesus' words in the previous section showed the clear necessity of trusting in him. Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world. Jesus predicted that he would depart and that that those who did not believe in him were not from his father but from the world. And he testified once again of his deity when he equated himself with the name of God that I am. He is the self-existent one. And so having heard Jesus' words, we see the initial response of many that day. We're told there, as we read in verse 30, that many believed in him. And we should observe that though often rejected, there were still those who believed in Jesus during his ministry. And the same is, is true today. I mean, by and large, you understand that the world we live in rejects the truth of Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus referred to it in Matthew as the broad way, right? There are many who go that way. Inevitably, though, the words and actions of Jesus will find some who do not reject the truth, but instead embrace and turn to him. At the same time, we should also remember that not everyone who professes outward belief in Jesus truly means it. And that is a consistent theme in the book of John. I mean, this is now not the first time, this is at least the third time we have hit this theme in the book of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple and then he went through the city of Jerusalem and performed different signs during the Passover feast. And we're told there that many professed belief in him. But that response was not genuine faith and trust in Jesus. As we read in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew the hearts of all and those who responded that day did not truly believe in him. That's why literally the, the idea behind these verses is that Jesus had no faith in their faith. They were instead taken up with his works. They saw the miracles he performed and and they were astounded by those things and, and drawn in by those things, but they didn't truly believe in who Jesus is. The same happened again in John chapter 6. People experienced great provision from Jesus when Jesus fed what would have been 10 to 15,000 people that day with with just those five little loaves of bread and, and the two fish. But they didn't truly believe in him. There, Jesus made a delineation between what true belief was and what mere fascination with what he did and the desire to see him do more works was. 
And in fact, at the end of John chapter 6, many of those people turn away and they never follow Jesus again. And he's left with those 12 disciples. There is a vast difference between knowing and assenting to the facts of a situation and placing true faith in what is presented. And Jesus makes this clear here yet again as he talks about true freedom. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus talks about, well, there are some results that come out of true belief. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now this verse, verse 32 is a verse that has probably been often misquoted and misused by every convict over the years, right? That if you knew the truth, the tr- you, know, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And it has nothing to do, by the way, with a legal case. It has everything to do with who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to look at in this verse here today. Jesus directs specific teaching on belief to those who have professed belief in him. Because he, being God, knows the hearts of all And he knows what it is they need to hear and what it is they need to understand about himself. And the people's response to what Jesus says will reveal a lot about who they are. How you respond to Jesus reveals your heart. He is the one that we have to respond to. And you know, it's been well observed that there are three components to saving faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, there must be a knowledge of of the truth. Intellectually, you must know who Jesus is, who you are, what God says about you, and how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? You have to know the truth of the gospel, right? You have to understand the basic biblical facts about salvation. And Jesus made sure that all those who heard him heard these things. He was clear with people about the truth of the gospel. He was clear with people about what it meant to believe in him. And I would guess that most, if not all in a room like this on a Sunday morning, have heard most, if not all, of these things. In fact, if you have come for any length of time during the series that we've talked on John, I can guarantee you you've heard these things. Because we've talked about them time after time after time, as John has, has written about them time after time after time. You have heard the truth of the gospel. You have been told the absolute, undeniable truth from God. But just knowing something isn't enough. Secondly, not only do you have to have knowledge of the truth, you then must assent to the fact that the things that you have heard are true. You, you have to agree with that. You have to say, yeah, that's, that's true. Because you cannot be hope, hope to be saved from your sin if you insist that God is lying. Listen, if you maintain that Jesus is the best way, a good way, or one way to heaven, you have not assented to the truth. You continue to try to hold on to your own definition of eternal life. You have not given proper place to God's declarations. And, and this is not a unique truth to the truth. This is not unique to the truth of salvation. You know, there are many things that are true in our world that people don't agree with, that, that people don't assent to, that they don't acknowledge. It may be true, but people don't agree with it. 
I mean, turn on any political news channel and you will find this. And I don't care which side of the aisle you find yourself on. You turn on a political news channel and you will find this. Facts and figures are presented, but if the findings of those facts and figures do not fit the agenda of the political powers that are represented, the facts and figures are dismissed, right? The truth is not assented to. And if the truth of God's salvation in Jesus is not assented to, it cannot be assimilated into one's life. The truth must be recognized as such. But even that is not enough. Do you realize it's not enough to know the truth of the gospel and then agree that it is true? There is the last thing that must be true in salvation. There must be a decisive action taken to personally appropriate Jesus as the only hope for salvation. You see, knowledge and acknowledgement lead us then to personal choice. And this is the path to true belief in Jesus. It is an informed, affirmed, personal decision. It is exercising one's faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith, Jesus will say here, will have tangible results in your life. And so before we even get to what Jesus says here are the tangible results of the gospel in the life of a person and the life of a believer, we have to, to understand then what it means. What is that? We have to know the gospel. We have to assent to the gospel. We have to then personally believe in the gospel. And also as a challenge to those who know Jesus Christ as Savior, that what is the major thing that we are tasked with doing in, that three, in those three steps? What is it that we are tasked with helping other people? We are tasked specifically with helping people to come to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Listen, you and I cannot make people assent to the gospel, right? You and I cannot twist people's arms into believing something, but we can tell them the truth. And that's exactly what we should be doing. What did Paul say? How shall they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't mean how should they hear unless you drag them into church and the pastor gets up and says something. What it means is how should they hear without someone who will tell them? My friend, if you are waiting for that person you know needs the gospel to walk through these doors on a Sunday morning, you may wait your entire life. They don't need the preacher. They need you to tell them the truth. They need you to love them enough to say, listen, I care about you and your eternity. I'm going to tell you what God did for me. And I want you to hear the truth of who Jesus is. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is your calling. To share with other people the truth of the gospel. To make disciples. Say, well, I mean, what if they don't believe? That's between them and God, right? And that's the thing. You, you and I, we may spend our whole lives sharing the gospel with people, praying for specific people, and never see them come to know the Lord. But God doesn't call us to twist their arms into salvation. God calls us to continue to share the truth. At the church in Corinth, where Paul had ministered, some factions had gathered or, or had broken out. Some were devoted to Paul or, or Paulus or, or other people to Jesus Christ. And, and, G, and Paul said, what is Paul? What is Apollos? I planted, Apollos watered, but who? God gave the increase. It isn't about you and me. It's about Jesus Christ. 
It's about God's work. And so let us take the initiative to engage in that spreading of the knowledge that people may understand who Jesus is. And Jesus says to those who have professed belief in him that there are some tangible, uh, uh, um, seeable results in their lives. First, Jesus says that those who have truly believed in him live in obedience to him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Jesus did not say that there is a works requirement to become his disciple. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying if you keep all the rules, if you keep all the laws, if you obey all the little things and you check the little boxes, then you're going to be saved. No, instead what he is saying is that there is, there is a natural outflow of the life of a disciple, and the natural outflow of the life of a disciple is to obey God. That's the norm. And throughout his ministry, Jesus made it quite clear that obedience is a sign of authenticity in the life of a disciple. We just spent the whole, uh, we spent a whole four days last week with Pastor Andy talking about that from 1 John. That the same, the same guy who God used to write this gospel wrote that letter and said that, that obedience is the sign that you have been saved. Matthew twelve fifty, Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. A transfer to the kingdom of God results in godly behavior. You can say it this way. Behavior follows belief. And again, to illustrate this, perhaps we could think of any other area of our lives. If we believe something is to be true, then it's going to affect our behavior, right? Can I illustrate to you in in kind of a silly way, but maybe it helps us understand? In our home. Okay, now this is going to get real murky because you're going to be like, that's your truth and we talked about that. Okay, just ignore that for a second. Because what I'm telling you is true, okay? We believe, and you should too, that the Braves are the best baseball team in the world, okay? And so therefore, when you come to our house, guess what you find? You find a lot of Brave stuff in our house. You know what you find the Norton family doing on a, almost any weeknight before the kids go to bed? We're sitting in front of the TV, What? Watching the Braves play baseball. Because it's something we enjoy. And we believe, as you should, by the way, because it's the truth, that the Braves are the best baseball team in the world. So we cheer for the Braves. If you believe the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the only way to heaven, you know what follows out of your belief? The behavior that I live for the kingdom of God. Behavior follows belief. Disciples are consumed with the word of God and thus implement it into their lives. This is the natural consequence and natural outflowing of that. But let's continue as we're still talking here about true freedom. And we see that, that not only is obedience the natural outflow of the life of disciple, but secondly, Jesus says that those who truly believe in Jesus know the truth of who Jesus is. In verse 32, and you shall know the truth. You see, the eyes of faith see what the physical eyes cannot. The Holy Spirit continues to teach the believer the things of God. 
The truth of God is not unknowable. It is absolute and full, and it is continually learned and embraced by true disciples. And there are people in this room who have walked with God for a long time, who have been disciples for 5, 10, 15, 40, 50, 60 years. And I'm going to tell you right now, you talk to any of them, they're going to say, God and his truth continues to teach me day by day. They continue to know the truth. And the more you learn of God, the more of his truth you will experience in your own life. In our postmodern world, the quest for truth is often abandoned. We are told that we cannot truly know the truth because we all have our own version of the truth. But Jesus tells us there is absolute truth found in himself, and those who follow him learn that truth. The gospel is truth, and the gospel is life-changing. And then lastly, Jesus says that the effects of those who believe in him and the truth, he says, and the truth shall make you free. Lastly, those who believe in Jesus find true and lasting freedom. Knowing the truth of the gospel and embracing it with your life results in an incredible freedom in your life. It is a freedom from sin, from judgment, from spiritual ignorance, spiritual death, and the enslavement of that spiritual ignorance. And so obeying Jesus, learning his truth as a disciple is freedom. In Jesus, sin no longer rules over your life. Instead, the word of Christ dwells richly in you, ruling your life and freeing your soul for life. And if this is the definition from Jesus, there is a great wonder about many who profess to be disciples. Because to profess to be a disciple of Jesus and to live a life in consistent, continual disobedience from Jesus doesn't jive with what Jesus just said, does it? It doesn't make any sense to say, oh yeah, I I trust in Jesus, but we never live for him. Obedience, embracing of the truth, knowing the truth is the sign of salvation. And as you might expect... These truths of who Jesus is bring some objections by those who are gathered there because there are those who are standing around Jesus that day who profess belief in him, but they haven't really truly believed in him. And now Jesus says, this is what you're going to do if you truly believed in him. And you know what? They haven't done it. And so therefore, they begin to raise questions and objections. And instead of trusting in him, they're seeking to maintain their own narrative about life. And that's where we see, secondly, today, as we, as we will go to the end, of the, chapter, uh, the end of this passage, the contested status of those who profess belief in him. In verse 33, you meet here the indignant countrymen. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? So Jesus' words on freedom strike a nerve with the ones who are professing faith in him. What they do is they view his promise of freedom to the, to the one who truly believes in him as an attack on their identity as descendants of Abraham. That is what they're accusing him of here. They are indignant that he would, by this statement, insinuate they are enslaved outside of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus has said. If you know me, you know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So they're saying, wait a minute. What are you talking about? 
We're not slaves. Now, if you know the history of the nation of Israel, and if you know the present historical context of this passage, you'll then be able to better understand what is being said here, okay? So let's, let's briefly recover that, okay? From Israel's history, we know that these objections could not be referring to the absence of physical enslavement. Because the Israelites in the Old Testament had been in bondage to Egypt, to Assyria, and Babylon, just to name a few. They had also been subservient, at least politically, to Medo-Persia, Greece, Syria, and at the time that Jesus is living, the nation of Israel is politically subservient to the nation of Rome, right? To the, to the Roman Empire. So instead, the Jews are responding indignantly, indignantly in regards to their spiritual freedom. That though they were a nation under Roman rule, the people continued to maintain that they were a people enjoying spiritual freedom. I mean, after all, as they said here in verse 33, they were descended from Abraham. Abraham is called the friend of God, who had received God's promise to make from him a people precious to God. They had received God's law and covenanted with him. They weren't like the other nations who worshipped these false idols. Those nations were heathen. They were in bondage, but never God's people. And once again, the people failed to understand the ramifications of the law of God. They failed to apply the truth revealed by God to his people and through his people. And so thus, Jesus now makes it clear what enslavement looks like and who it is that falls under the category of the enslaved. Look at verse 34, and you'll see the enslaved lives that Jesus talks about. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Though the people contested their status, Jesus sets the record straight. And here, notice the phrase he begins verse 34 with again, most assuredly, or maybe your Bible says truly, truly, or something of the like. And the idea behind this this introductory statement is testifying of this, not only the importance of what Jesus is saying, but also the accuracy of what he is saying. The people were indignant at Jesus' words, thinking themselves free. And why did they think they were free? Well, quite frankly, they thought they were free spiritually because they were Jewish. That's the idea here. Well, we're descendants of Abraham, so therefore, we're spiritually free. We're, We're the people. We're God's people. Jesus, though, in one simple statement in verse 34, eradicates the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He says here that the one who commits sin is defined by that sin and thus enslaved to that sin. There are no exceptions here. Jesus does not say here in verse 34, the Gentiles who commit sin are slaves to sin. What does he say? Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The soul who sins is enslaved to his sin. More to the point, Jesus is emphasizing in that verse that the one who continues to live in sin, practicing it regularly, is showing his enslavement to that sin. And see, here's the thing. The law that God had revealed to his people through Moses should have showed them their sin, right? 
I mean, it should have stared them right in the face every time they had to go make a sacrifice or they required to do this or that or the Day of Atonement, that we have a problem, and that problem is sin. They could not live their lives without sinning. You and I cannot live our lives without sinning. I mean, sin is as normal to human beings as breathing. Because we are born broken, sinful to our core. And even the good things that we would offer to God, the Bible tells us, are tainted by our sin. The prophets tell us that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But that's not how sin builds itself. I mean, have you ever heard sin build itself in your life as a master? No. Satan is much more crafty than that. And sin sells itself as though it was enjoyable. It promises you relief, release, and comfort. In reality, sin is a cruel master keeping us under its rule without mercy. The law of God was given by God to expose our sin. This has been true since the law's revelation from God, which we have recorded in the book of Exodus. His standard shows us you and I have a problem. And no one who stood before Jesus that day and no one who stands before God today in Jesus Christ has ever met the standard. Therefore, we are all guilty. We have all broken God's law, and as such, we are all enslaved by sin. And by not truly placing their faith in Jesus, the people who stood before Jesus that day and those who, who, who stand before God today continue in that enslavement. And without him, we find no hope. It was the true then, and it is true today. Do you want to know what it looks like to place faith in Jesus? It means that we are no longer consistently given to a life of sin. That is a tangible part. Remember obedience? That is a tangible effect of eternal life imparted by Jesus Christ. Yet sadly, faith in Jesus is treated or tried to be treated by so many as some type of pass for sin. People seem to acknowledge their need for a Savior and even agree that Jesus is that Savior, but they're not willing to fully embrace Him. Instead, they continue to hold on to their sin, savoring its deadly allure. But sin is nothing to be trifled with. Sin is nothing but a monstrous killer. It is a vile master that will drag your soul into eternal damnation. And so, as with Jesus, I would call on you to heed the call of God to abandon your sin and embrace the Savior. Because without Jesus, we have no hope. For we cannot free ourselves from the bondage of sin. Listen, you can try to alter your behavior. You can try to balance out your wrongdoings. You can serve penance. But no personal actions will deliver you from the master of sin. Jesus alone offers freedom and deliverance. And that is not to say that Christians will not struggle with sin. But I would hasten to tell you there's a difference there. Christians struggle with sin. 
Do you understand the difference? Unbelievers do not struggle with sin. They continue on in it because that's all they ever know. But believers now have spiritual, supernatural help available to them for victory. An unbeliever who does not have such, he may feel guilt from, and shame from time to time, but he knows no different in his life. So instead of finding change, he continues to do wrong. But believers, Christians recognize with God's conviction the wrong things that they do. And then they find victory through God's word and with God's spirit over those things. And Jesus makes it quite clear at the close of our passage today that slaves to sin face judgment, but those who believe in him have freedom. In verses 35 and 36, as you close the passage here, you find the emancipation in salvation. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So Jesus now illustrates the vast difference between a slave and a son. So if you remember, the Jews considered themselves sons because of their racial heritage, because they were descended from Abraham. Jesus declares that because of their sin, they are not sons, they are slaves. And because of this, they stand on precarious ground. A slave has no rights. He can be sold or dismissed at any time. And in fact... Jesus' statement here in verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 35, may have brought up to the people standing there, and Jesus himself may have been alluding to, an occurrence from the life of Abraham here. In Genesis, we read that Abraham, outside the will of God, had a son whose name was Ishmael. This son was born by way of Abraham's relationship to the family servant, Hagar. And though Ishmael would be the father of a nation, he eventually was driven out of Abraham's home. Why? Because he was not the son of promise. That privilege belonged to Isaac. And in the same way, only true children of Abraham will receive the promise of eternal life. Well, that's a new statement. True children of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, This is a promise not based on the physical heritage of one's family, but it is found in the spiritual heritage of Jesus Christ. So therefore, true freedom is found in Jesus alone. He is the Son of God. That's why Jesus says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. He is eternal life. He has the authority to free you from your slavery to sin. It is only through belief in him that you can be released from the bondage of sin and the terrible consequences that it brings. And in Jesus, you can be free indeed. And it is shown, as shown by what true disciples are, you and I, if we have come to Jesus Christ, are not free to do what we want. Instead, we are free to do as we ought. The original created purpose of man was to glorify God. You go all the way back to the beginning and read about creation, that man was created perfectly in the image of God. But sin robs God of the glory he deserves. 
It mars man's makeup and his purpose. And in Jesus, that glory is restored. In Jesus, we can live for God's glory again. We can find victory over sin. We can defeat destructive habits. We can repair ruined relationships. We can relinquish a sinful desire to exercise control in our lives. And instead, we can live for the kingdom of God, giving God the glory. Jesus is not the master of spite. He is the king of love. And so let us run to him and experience full freedom in Jesus Christ. Hearing, confessing, and acting on the truth of God revealed in Jesus is the only path to true freedom and is the only way to live a life of glory, to live life for the glory of God. True freedom comes only through Jesus Christ. And if you have tried to find your own way out of sin, I'm going to tell you right now, you have failed. Even if you feel like you've succeeded in some short-term victory, you will find that it will fail. Because Jesus is the only hope of eternal life. He is the only way to God. He is the only deliverer. He is true freedom. And so today is the day of salvation. If you have never trusted in Jesus, I urge you to come to him today. Because God is holy And can have nothing to do with our sin. And God is just. And therefore must judge our sin. But he is also loving. And has reached down to us and sent Jesus Christ to take our place. And because of his grace. His immeasurable grace. He offers salvation as a gift. And if that is you today. If you hear this message and you think. I look at the fruit of my life and I've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. But let's take it a step further. If you claim to belong to Jesus, if you have a relationship with him, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to ask yourself this question, do I live for him? Do I live free of sin, or do I still see consistently the enslavement of sin in my life. You know, I know there's some words I shouldn't be saying, but they fly readily to my lips. There's some thoughts that I know don't please the Lord and don't reflect His purity, but they seem to rise unbidden in my mind. There is a destructive, addictive habit that I know that I should eradicate, but it continues to dig its claws into my life time after time after time. My friend, freedom from sin is found in Jesus Christ. And maybe today, you have a relationship with Jesus, but you need to recommit to the struggle against sin in your life. Freedom from sin is found in Him. In Him, you have the power to fight back and win. Why? Because it is the power of God that works in you. Both to will and to do His good pleasure. You and I cannot be perfect in this life. I wish that after church today, we could have everybody come down and Ty would just hand out the weekly magic sanctification pills and we'd all take them and go home and we'd never sin. But we're not going to do that today. 
You and I cannot be perfect in this life, but you know what we can be by the help of God? We can be consistent. We can see victory. We can live for him. There is hope. But you know what it takes? It takes humility before God and submission to his word. And you know what? You must seek out his help. And let's be real, folks. You may need the help of a fellow believer holding you accountable and encouraging you. I don't know about you, but there are things in my life, whether they be spiritual or otherwise, sometimes you just need help. You need someone to put their arm around you and say, hey, I'm going to help hold you accountable. You realize accountability is not a bad word, right? In a world, by the way, that shuns truth, we often shun accountability. Well, I don't want anybody looking at my life. We need each other. It is a necessary part of living for the Lord. In Jesus, we are free indeed. So I encourage you today to find that freedom, to live that freedom, and reflect that freedom in him. Father, we are so grateful for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we must admit that without you, we are hopeless. We are slaves to sin. We are damned to hell. But because of Jesus Christ, we have hope. Lord, we ask today that you would do your work in our hearts. That if we have played the game of salvation, you would expose that in our lives. And you would draw us to yourself. Lord, as Christians, if we have consistently given victory to sin in our lives, whether it be one, two, or half dozen different things, that you would not let us rest. That you would convict us of that sin and show us that there is hope and victory in Jesus Christ. Or the gospel isn't just for salvation, it's for sanctification as well. May we see that because of you, we can enjoy freedom today. Lord, we pray that as we depart from this place in a few minutes, that your word would continue to do its work in our hearts. You would change us today because of what we have heard. In your name we pray. Amen.